Welcome to a special episode of the Eclectic Readers Podcast. I'm Susan. And I'm Meredith. Today, we're interviewing author Tara Clancy, whose stories have been published in the New York Times, The Rumpus, and the Paris Review Daily. You may have also heard her on the Moth Radio Hour, NPR Snap Judgment Risk, or The Story Collider. Today, we're talking to her about a recently published memoir, The Clancy's of Queens. Tara, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, it's good to be here. How are you? We are so excited to have you on the show today. You have no idea. Um, (laughs) Hey, that's cool. We loved your memoir so much. Um, And so our first question is kind of pretty general, but I think it's important. What led you to decide to write your memoir? Okay, well, I got a story for that, right? I mean, I got stories for everything, so you, you're probably not shocked. Um, so it's a little bit of a story, but here we go. We'll try to do it. We'll try to do it a little bit fast. Um, so basically, uh, I had gotten as a Christmas present uh, randomly a copy of Richard Price's book, Lush Life. Um, and I had not read Richard Price before, and I guess the reason I got it was because my father had worked in the precinct uh, where that book takes place, the seventh precinct. And so uh, somebody thought, well, I think you'll like this. And so I read it, and I loved it. Uh, and then I went to a bookstore, and I decided I wanted anything else Richard Price had written. Uh, and I was given a copy of The Wanderers, which was his very first book about a, a group of working class guys, kind of partially autobiographical, um, uh, working class guys in the Bronx. And I was bartending at the time, and I went and I started reading this book, and I was obsessed. And so I would be bartending, and I would be one-handing the book uh, and, and unable to put it down, and then, like, sliding <laughs> beers over with the other hand to people. Nice. Awesome. Uh, and, you know, as a kid, I had been I had been obsessed with my father and and my uncles and their stories and I used I was like this chronic eavesdropper like I would try to eavesdrop on the stories and I had this way of doing that where I would hide inside the refrigerator door like if, you know, if they were telling stories I would pretend that I was like looking for something to eat uh, but really I was just eavesdropping and so I would be in there forever you know I'd be like covered in these <laughs> bumps I'd be cold and I would just kind of <laughs> I would shuffle around like the mayo and the mustard and the ketchup, you know, I would kind of be doing like, like three card Monty with the condiments, you know, um, (laughs) standing inside the refrigerator door trying to eavesdrop. Um, And meanwhile, on the other side of the refrigerator door, it was like summertime in Queens and my father and my uncles would be sitting around this table and telling these like raunchy, good, juicy stories from their youth and, you know, overstuffed ashtray and, and like, you know, cans of beer. Um, but inevitably, I'd get caught every time. My father would be like, "Who's in there? You know, get out." Um, <laughs> these stories aren't for kid ears. Um, and so, meanwhile, like, flash forward again to me reading The Wanderers and bartending, and I'm like, you know, I'm no more than like 20 pages into that book, and I was like transported right back to that refrigerator door. It was like I was getting to hear these stories that my father and my uncles had told. Um, only this time, I got to stay. You know, I got to hear how they ended, and so. I was just like, I was so into that book for what was in it, um, but I was kind of equally struck by what wasn't in it, uh, and that was the story of New York's working class women. And so I went back to the bookstore, and I flag a clerk, and I hold up my copy of The Wanderers after I finished it, and I said, hey, I said, I basically, I want this book, that's what I'm looking for, is like this book, but by a woman. Mm, mm-hmm. Gotcha. You know, the guy's wheels start to turn and he's staring at me and eventually he just goes, he like shakes his head and he goes, me too. 
Yeah. <laughs> wow. But it doesn't exist. Uh, and we start brainstorming. And essentially what we come up with, and it, it was really shocking to me, but the last book written by a New York working class woman uh, about us was A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which was 73 years old this year. Wow. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, that's that's more than my mom's lifetime uh, that she has gone unrepresented uh, in a book. And it kind of extends, you know, to 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 film, to other media. Uh, and so I was shocked by this fact. And I went around telling everybody I was like, can you believe it? This is crazy. And then I started making this joke. I was like, well, I guess I'm going to have to write a book and uh, I'm going to call it a tree grew in Brooklyn a long <laughs> time ago. <laughs> And then the joke became a mantra. And I was like, you know what? Like, maybe I actually am going to write this book. Like, I, you know what? Screw it, you know? Um, and uh, I started by publishing essays. And I didn't really know that I had a book in me when I did the essays. Like, I didn't know if I could do one long memoir, if I could just do a collection of stories. I didn't, I didn't know anything. And I don't have a writing degree or anything. Um, but I got very lucky. It's kind of this fairy tale where my first ever published story was in the New York Times. Um, and then they published a bunch of more of my essays, my personal essays. And uh, and that just kind of brought the, 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 you know, publishing came to me a little bit. You know, these essays wow. went out and people mm. wrote me and, and agents and were like, do you have a book in you? You know, and at first I was like, I'm, I don't know. I think I, I'm not sure, you know. And they were like, no, we think you could do it. Um Wow. Yeah. And so, yeah, the rest is uh, the rest is is history. You know, um, I like to say, you know, I felt like the world was waiting for me, which is very good because I was waiting for it behind a freaking bar, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I definitely see that. It's just it is different from other memoirs. And I love A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. <laughs> and I can definitely see like similarities. Um so I, I'm glad you wrote it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm definitely. glad I wrote it too. I'm, I mean, I'm glad we just, you know, we needed to like get the, we needed to get the ball rolling. You know, it was, it's pretty tragic. I mean, 73 years is again, it's, it's people's lifetimes, you know? Um, and then even if you think about film or television, there's often just these kind of like one dimensional stereotypical, um, you know, portraits of working class New York women, you know, mm-hmm. um, I've, I've had a joke where I said, you know, think about a Scorsese film, you know, it'll be like De Niro, De Niro, De Niro, De Niro, cut to a lady in a house dress, two seconds back, De Niro, De Niro, De Niro. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're just not, we're not anywhere. So, yeah. Right. Um, all right. From, so from this fabulous memoir, uh, could you read us an excerpt from the Clancy's of Queens? Um, sure. You ready? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> When I twist the mental radio tuner dial of my memory as far back as it'll go, I get staticky snippets of my parents and me from my earliest days, but that sweet, crystal clear reception actually first comes in on the time I spent with my grandparents. In other words, as best as I can remember, life begins for me in a tiny, ad hoc, geriatric Italian village on 251st Street, in Belrose, Queens. With both my mom and dad working double time after their divorce, starting at age three, I spent the weekdays in the care of my grandma, Rosalie Riccobono, who lived, of course, with my grandpa, Bruno Ricky Riccobono, who in turn shared a two-family house with my great aunt, Mary Zaccio, 
that just happened to be next door to the homes of two other Italian-American septuagenarian couples, Tina and Lenny Caranci, and Anna and Joe Paradis. And though I was with my parents on weeknights and weekends, bouncing between their vastly different world, my most vivid early memories are born in this 400-meter stretch of street in these three abutting houses with these seven elderly Italians. In my mind, the scene plays like one continuous steady cam shot, tracking me as I weave my way through side doors to kitchens, down hallways to living rooms, from one house to the next to the next, casting off hellos left and right, like Henry Hill in the Copacabana in Goodfellas. That shot begins when a sharply dressed Ray Liotta hands the keys of his caddy to the valet on a bustling Manhattan street outside the club and then makes his way inside with the beautiful Lorraine Bracco on his arm. My scene begins with my mother's beat-up blue Oldsmobile screeching to a halt in front of the geriatrics of 251st Street compound and me, age five, hopping out in a pair of jeans with the knees torn out and an incredible Hulk backpack. At the time, 1985, mom and I still live in the house my parents once shared, 10 minutes away in Rosedale, Queens, but she drops me at grandma's every morning before heading to work. I was in kindergarten at PS 133 in Belrose, but on days like this one, when I was off from school, I wasted no time in starting my rounds. Right after mom peels out, I leap up grandma's stoop steps two at a time, yank open the screen door, and head into the kitchen to find my grandpa on his way out to work. In his late 50s, after 30 years of driving a truck for Linens of the Week, he got a job at the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. And now, at 70, he still works five days a week, taking great pride in stuffing his barrel chest and thick legs into a perpetually too tight brown polyester suit. With his round belly, big bulbous nose, and deep, genuine happiness, Grandpa is as close to Buddha as an Italian-born, Brooklyn-bred, truck-driver-turned-life-insurance salesman has ever been. When I appear, he's standing at the kitchen sink, displaying his typical toothy grin between blissful gulps of his infamously disgusting breakfast concoction. Hunks of rock-hard, stale Italian bread jammed into the bottom of this one particular red-rimmed white enamel pot then topped with a couple of cups of sweet milky coffee and cooked until the whole mess could be eaten with a spoon like oatmeal. He calls it zoop, soup, which just makes it sound worse. And of his six children and 18 grandchildren, only he and I don't find it repulsive. Morning, shrimpy, he says, putting the last spoonful into my mouth before planting a drive-by kiss on my forehead as we head our separate ways. I dump my backpack in the hall and slip out the side door that leads to the backyard, which is something that people have here in the far eastern reaches of Queens. It's mainly a concrete patch uh, about the size of my mom's Oldsmobile, covered by a web of clotheslines. But if you duck under the soaring sails of old people undies, the brown bathroom towels with embroidered owls on them, and the nubby pink chenille blankets, you'll find an L-shaped flower bed that wraps around the back perimeter of the yard. The longer side is stocked with grandma's rose bushes, and the shorter side holds grandpa's tomato plants. 
When Grandpa runs out of wooden dowels to tie his plants to, he commandeers the yardsticks from Grandma's sewing supply closet, but it'll be two decades before I have any idea that it's not totally standard gardening practice to have a bunch of rulers sticking out of your soil. In fact, the first thing I do when I get outside is pluck one of those yardsticks out of the tomato bed and start sprinting from one side of the yard to the other and pole vaulting myself into the air with it in an attempt to snatch grandma's wooden clothespins off the line. This would usually be followed later that day by my grandmother chasing me around and around the dining room table with a broken yardstick screaming, Kekatsu, how many times with the yardsticks? When I've had my fill of yardstick pole vaulting, I climb over the four-foot chain-link fence that separates Grandma's backyard from Tina and Lenny's, go through their back door without a knock, and weave my way from the kitchen to the living room. The Caranchi's house was its own universe of periwinkle and crystal, with the smell of Aquanet and Chesterfields embedded into the wall-to-wall carpeting. My five-year-old version of an acid trip was to stand dead center in their living room doing pirouettes with my head tilted completely backward, watching the room whirl by upside down. The half-cocked head of Tina, complete with jumbo pink curlers, painted on eyebrows and crooked lipstick, pops into my line of vision mid-spin. Hey, you're gonna make yourself sick, you don't stop that. I snap out of it. Sorry, morning, Tina. I throw my arms around her waist in a genuinely loving hug, but with the less savory secondary intention of sneaking a peek down at her golf ball size bunions. Wow. And then I'm off. In three running leaps, I cross the concrete driveway that separates Tina and Lenny's house from Anna and Joe's and land at the Paradise's side door with both my arms straight up over my head like Mary Lou Retton after sticking a floor routine. The kitchen window is just to the left of the door, and I shout up into it, I'm here! In no time, Anna's plump frame appears in the doorway. Good morning, my sweetheart. She opens the door into her tiny, sunlit kitchen full of glowing 70s-era Harvest Gold appliances. White lace curtains frame the windows, and a ceramic relief of fruit hangs on the wall above the small, round oak table. It's about the most pleasant five square feet on earth. I hop onto a chair at the table and wait for Anna to pour me a glass of orange juice, cut by half with water, as always. We don't say much, but it couldn't be any sweeter. Anna leans into the counter and smiles as I sit there drinking my juice. And when I'm finished, I kiss her on the cheek and skip on out again, this time back to grandma's house. If Tina's place is preserved in my memory like some tacky funhouse and Anna's is a scene from a Norman Rockwell painting, then the two-family house that my grandparents share with Aunt Mary is something of a towering Japanese pagoda. Grandma and Grandpa live on the top tier, Aunt Mary is in the middle, and the bottom level is a finished basement with wall-to-wall folding tables where all... 30 members of my immediate family come together for holidays. In order for us to fit, uh, we kids had to crawl under the first two rows of tables to get to our seats. So when somebody yelled, dinner time, 
all 18 of us would drop onto all fours and make our way through people's legs and around chairs like a great tide of mice. Is that good? Should I keep reading? You can keep, well, I mean, you could just <laughs> read the whole book, right? I no, that's that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, it's such a great introduction to your family and how you were growing up. Um, it's I love it. I love I was hooked pretty much with the whole description of your family. <laughs> um, so did you use a specific process to write your memoir? Um, was it a more a write down whatever came to mind and then you would piece it together later? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, one, you know, I very deliberately tried to write in my voice. That's like, important to me. Um, and so, like, I would say one is that I talk out a lot of what I write. So I, I can't, like, write in a cafe or a library all that much because I actually pace my apartments talking out loud and then kind of transcribing it. Um, but I kind of feel like I, the way that I do it is like, I have these really vivid little memories, like, like, like the, what I just read, you know, this memory of like going between these houses on this one block and what each one looked like. And it doesn't seem all that important. You know, you're like, what, what's so exciting about this, but they're so vivid. Um, and so I would start with that, like just the most vivid piecemeal memories of my life. Um, and then, you know, it wasn't until after I had jotted all these things down, little stories or just little scenes, um, that my editor and I would figure out how the hell we tie them all together, you know? Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how long did it take you to write, um, write your book? A uh, year and a half. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, a lot of these stories I had also, you know, I had told on stage, I had told in the moth, I had, you know, like some of them were, were kind of laid out, you know, and I knew they were going to be in there. So um, I guess maybe it took me a little less time due to that. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Now, I know I was wondering throughout while I was reading if you were using people's, their real names of your friends and family members, and then you confirmed in your acknowledgments that they did agree to let you use their real names, which I thought was really cool of them. Uh, yeah. So what did, what did everyone think when you approached them with this idea of a memoir? And did they help you remember any parts of your childhood um, that maybe you didn't think to write about? Um, you know, a little bit. Yeah. You know, and then I was obviously like kind of fact checking things with them, but I wanted to kind of start first with what I wanted to write or what really like stuck out to me or felt important to me. And then I would just go to them to clear it and make sure they were okay with me telling whatever that particular story. And then they would maybe add a little bit of, you know, oh, you forgot this or you got this wrong or, you know, I think this happened instead. And like a couple of times we had disagreements, you know, I was like, no way, man, it didn't, it didn't happen like that. Um, you know, uh, but in the end, yeah, everybody was kind of, everybody was happy with it and it's a positive book, you know, and I, I've said to people, you know, maybe if, I mean, you have to read it to find out more, but you know, I was, I was essentially born in like a, a trailer, right. In Queens and spent the first 10 years of my life there. And I was like, you know, if I was like this upper class, straight woman, you know, maybe writing a, a such a positive, upbeat story wouldn't wouldn't sell or wouldn't interest anybody. But I'm like, when you are, you know, a butch lesbian born in a trailer in Queens, you know, the kind of nuance is that my name is on the cover. You know, like that's the nuance. That's the that's the conflict is that and that it's not miserable that I've you know that I see humor in it that that I wrote it. You know, um, 
And so I think, you know, I didn't get a, a lot of pushback because the story is really positive because I'm positive and because I had a good, I had a good life, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, yeah. You definitely see that throughout the book of like how happy you were. I mean, even mm-hmm. through the hard times, like you still like, there was love and there was positivity. There was still the humor, the snarkiness. Um, it was all still there, which was wonderful. Um, sometimes you just don't see that. And it's like, well, there's love and happiness everywhere if you just look for it. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's how you see the world, right? But yeah, I did. I dubbed it the anti-misery memoir. <laughs> <laughs> that, was that a, a working title before the class? That was a great yeah. <laughs> That should have been the subtitle. The class is <laughs> An anti-misery memoir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, I was curious, after you came out to your parents, which was a great story in and of itself, um, what was it like to come out to the rest of your family uh, after that? Um, yeah, you don't see that in the course of this book. I mean, because, mm-hmm. I, you know, it wasn't as much of a, like, I need to sit down and talk about this with you and then hear your feedback. You know, it was just kind of like, here I am showing up to family weddings with, you know, girls as dates. Um, awesome. and so that all was okay, uh, with everybody. Um, and then that actually changed, um, when I went to get married, uh, then it, which was pretty interesting, but, but, um, it didn't go so well. Uh, but that is book two material ladies. Mm. That is two because I didn't, yeah. I, it was at about age 21 and, uh, I got married at 26. So, um, yeah. And it was, that was interesting. It was sort of like, it's okay with us that you are gay until you want to commit and get married right now. We're ready to kill you. Um, <laughs> Like fine for you to be a total runaround uh, gay person, but hey, you wanna you wanna commit, you know? You want they no? Uh, and at the time, it, which two thousand six, I you know, remember it was really being politicized. You know, that this gay marriage was really something we were talking about a lot, and it was really being it was really politicized and kind of being used uh, as a pawn. And unfortunately, some people in my family got wrapped up in that. Um, but again, you'll have to stay tuned to book two for details of how that panned out oh yes. all right <laughs> you, you got us out of my tbr <laughs> yeah 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 the second i'm gonna do is a second book about um my wife and i and our kids and uh, yeah i've dubbed that one like kind of a, a lesbian annie hall um <laughs> my wife is this sort of bubbly midwestern lady um and i'm uh, you know who i am in that equation i guess um <laughs> And and so yeah, just we, I think we need a gay family story about you know I have two sons so mm, yeah, definitely. definitely wow that yeah I'm already hooked uh, and I think Susan will agree with me on this but I loved the audiobook so much yep. yeah. oh man it was awesome um, thank you and I think anyone can tell just from our interview with you why because you're so charismatic and just listening to you tell your story was. So great. Um, it was awesome. But um, I'm just wondering, what was the process like to create the audiobook? I mean, basically, you know, they lock you in a little room. Um, <laughs> and, you know, um, because, again, I, I host the moth uh, shows and I've done quite a bit of performing. So it wasn't super intimidating to me to be reading my work and telling stories out loud because it's something I do. Um, so they just locked. But, but I will say the one new thing is that, like, you learn you've been pronouncing words wrong your whole life. Like, it's like humbling. Like, like I would always say a clapboard house, right? But it's clabbered. 
And I was like, devastated. I fought. I like, I was like, hey, hang on, pause the tape. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? It's it's clapboard. I was like, it's clapboard, a clapboard house. Like, no. And then um a primer. So I guess primer, you only use primer when you're referring to like the paint. Um, but if you're, you know, otherwise it's primer. And I had said that wrong, you know, so that, that these are some of the fun, you know, fun things in uh, in audio book recording. <laughs> you learn Did about they just do they just stop you and say, hey, you're saying that wrong? <laughs> yeah, they like, stop, you're saying that wrong. And then sometimes I would fight. I would like, I would like make them Google it, you know, I mean, just we were having fun. But I'd be like, no way, that can't be right. Um, but um, yeah, that's about it. You're just like locked in this little, you learn that your stomach rumbles, like you think your stomach, you're not somebody whose stomach rumbles, and then you're locked in this little soundproof booth, and you're like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> goodness um and so we want to go into like some the meat of your book a little bit um now and we want to kind of touch on mark uh, who's was a really big part of your life um very big part of my life yeah mm -hmm. Uh, you mentioned that you only realized mark put in the pool for you as you were writing the book um, mm -hmm. Where you were younger, what other realizations uh, came to you while you were writing writing this? I mean, nothing really. I don't know that there's anything that stands to be as stark as that. But I wasn't. Yeah, that was an interesting thing. I don't know. Do we need to give a little background on that um, to to people listening? Um, uh, so you know, I guess this gives away a little bit of the punch. But my um, Mark was the very very wealthy boyfriend of my mom. After my parents split, my mom uh, got involved with Mark, um, and they met because she was his cleaning lady. Um, but they legitimately fell in love and had a very long uh, and and great relationship. And a sort of a sort of interesting quirk of my life was that while I really ninety nine percent grew up in Queens um, and surrounded by people in Queens and went to schools in Queens and all that kind of stuff, um, I would go out to this guy's house. Um, he had a duplex like in the city, and then he had uh, this really big estate in the Hamptons. And so every other weekend when I wasn't with my dad. I'd be going out uh, and kind of living this double life, um, which I've said like I was able, like I was able to jump social strata in a single bound, you know. Um, <laughs> and he the, originally, when I was really young at this house, there wasn't, there was no pool, and we would set up this little baby pool, which he thought was like the tackiest thing in the <laughs> world. Um, and so one year, he was just like, "That's it, no more with this crappy-looking plastic thing in the middle of my very, you know, beautiful historic." <laughs> Um, and he's like, I'm going to put in a, I'm going to put in a pool. And it really, like, I always, the pool looms large in my life because it was like, he, it was this crazy thing. He was such an interesting guy. He didn't want like a pool that looked uh, like a pool. He wanted it to look like it had been there forever. Like it was like a lagoon or a pond or this like nature made thing. And so he had it made of stone. And I mean, it was this huge project it cost probably tens of thousands of dollars um, and my mom planted flowers that like draped into it. So it really didn't look like a, like a pool, even though it was a fully functioning, heated, filtered pool. It looked like a pond and it, anybody who saw it was blown away and it wasn't right. It wasn't until I was writing that I remembered the baby pool thing. And then I was like, oh my God, he act, he essentially built this for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. My crappy baby pool. Um, 
So that's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty stark thing. It's like on the one hand, you know, I'm living with my dad in this trailer, which was all of 200 square feet and being picked up by limousines and brought out to this lagoon pool that was built for me, you know? So it was a little head spinny. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the was, least. yeah, the, the point where it's like, hey, this is a totally different life than I'm living here. Because up yeah. until then, you're just like, oh, yeah, I did this on the weekend and this is what his house looked like and this is the car that, you know, took me there. But the pool, it was like, oh, this yeah. is totally different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you get to the pool, there's no yep. going back. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. And I know I really enjoyed hearing about your moon and stars talks with Mark that uh, you did say kind of helped to shape who you are today. And I was wondering if, if you're going to have those kinds of talks with your own children. Absolutely. Yes. I've already started having those talks. My children are, are three and six, but my six-year-old can really hang in and even my three-year-old a little bit. Um, but the, yeah, the things that we dubbed the moon and stars talks were just that Mark, he was amazing. I mean, he really treated children, uh, people of all classes, people of all ages, um, like peers. So even though he was a sort of self-made millionaire, big white guy, uh, it didn't matter who I brought to the house or my mom or our friends, Brooklyn Italians, people I grew up with in Queens, young, old. After dinner, he sat you down and he liked to have these giant existential conversations. And I started having them with him as young as I can remember. I don't remember not having them. Um, and I like loved it. I like lived for it so much so that my mom would kind of leave us after dinner and I would just sit there and just talk with him. And she... One night we stayed up so late and she came in to get me to say, you have to go to bed. And she said, are you guys going to talk about the moon and the stars all night? Uh, and it, they got dubbed the moon and stars talks. Um, and they, it was just really great to think in, in, of the world in these kind of bigger ways than I was used to or anybody around me was talking about. And so now, yeah, I, I try to do that um, with my kids. I just kind of, I, I don't, you know, you don't talk down to them and I try to ask them really big giant questions and see what comes out of their mouths about things and you know like it can be it can be anything my son and I had a big conversation about sand he was like <laughs> wanted to sand got to the beach and how you know I mean it was just like this big cool kind how come you know the sand when did the sand get wet and how does the sand get dry and you know like it was just 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 big I mean he was maybe five you know but he was um it was great you know to just go and just talk we could talk about we talked about it for hours you know so Sounds like my daughter. Why did yeah. this hard thing happen? Um, yeah. Physics. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's amazing, though. I think that really helps a child kind of broaden their view on the world. So yeah, and they'll give mm -hmm. you. They're the best. They're really good conversationalists. You know, people mm -hmm. underestimate. They are. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, really like are. you can get more interesting conversations out of them, and I think that's what was. What was Mark could see that like I could talk to a six year old for hours about, you know, the cosmos, you know, um, and 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 they'll hang in, you know, and so just to not be underestimated either because of my age or my class or where I came or any of that. Yeah, that takes a that's a huge effect on a person. You know, it was like um, it just gave me a lot of, of confidence and it stayed with me forever. I mean, Mark was definitely um, a mentor of mine. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. And uh, turning to uh, one of the turning points in your life, um, King Lear, <laughs> <laughs> you said that it really helped you get on track um, of where you are today. And the majority of us are, are 
Shakespeare nerds in the Eclectic Readers podcast. And yeah. what is your favorite Shakespeare play? If you can King Lear. <laughs> <laughs> so that one stayed the favorite? Of course, yes. King Lear stayed this favorite. But I mean, if I had to pick a comedy, I guess I'd say Twelfth Night. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, King Lear is just always... I mean, not because it was the first play that I read. It was really essentially the first book that I read on my wow. own, of my own volition at age 16. Um, and so we'll always, it'll always... But it is also just the greatest play. I don't think... I don't know if I'd get too much pushback from... <laughs> Um, that it also is just the best. So that is for sure my favorite, King Lear. And then, uh, and then I, I love, I do love Twelfth Night. Yeah. Mm. Do you, uh, you uh, did like a, a project for your teacher on King Lear. Uh, do you mm-hmm. still have that or? <laughs> I do. I have it someplace. I have like a, you know, one of those big folders of shit you made when you were a kid. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, it's it's in there. It was like this collage, and it was like I yeah, I was a pretty I got in a lot of trouble when I was in high school. So this was like the first project or thing I cared about or did, and I was I think it's funny now. Like I like I cut out you know like a collage that I made from my mother's magazines, and I cut out things like phrases like twisted sister, you know, and I <laughs> anything that would be a theme of King Lear um, that could fit. And and I had a, a king of. Um, a playing card, you know, like a, a the mm. King of Hearts mm. playing mm-hmm. card, and I put that on there, and so it's uh, it's actually pretty cool looking. But it meant a lot to me because it was a really big turning point. Like I was suddenly like, okay, I think I'm gonna go to college, and I think I'm gonna study Shakespeare, and I and I did for a little while. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, that was awesome. Um, Shakespeare, man, he's still <laughs> still affecting people's lives even yeah. now. It's pretty awesome. Um, so I, we're kind of down to our final questions, and I guess this one could be a deep question if you want it to be, or or <laughs> not. But um, what do you hope people take away from your story? Oh, I got a good answer for that one um, because actually somebody asked me that it was very early on in one of the pub- my meetings with publishers um, when we were shopping the book around, and I, this this came out of my mouth, and at the time people thought I was joking, but it, it really wasn't. And I basically said that I hope that uh, when when people read this book, that it sort of inspires them to write a better one. Wow. That's what I want. Um, I want there to be a little revolution uh, <laughs> of especially working class women um i i want more of those books i want to read them you know i i don't want to go into a bookstore and have to hold up you know i don't want somebody my son's age you know in 10 years of going into a bookstore and holding up a book and and being like it's been 73 years you know (laughs) right yeah Yeah. no um i i want i want every little you know i want somebody to read my book i want a puerto rican girl in the bronx to read my book and go i can write a better book than this i got a better story screw tara clancy i'm gonna do it you know um because that's 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 what i want to read so that's what i hope happens nice that's a good takeaway i definitely see that um so we're looking into the future here. Do you have any upcoming projects? I know you mentioned the one um, talking about your wife and your children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's going to be project. Uh, that's going to be the next book. Um, you know, in the meanwhile, uh, my book has been optioned for TV, and so we're doing. Wow. Uh, we're, we're starting to figure that whole thing out. Um, 
that awesome. you never know. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's that's something that's going on. Um, and then I, I, in the meanwhile, you know, you can always catch me telling stories and hosting the moth live shows um, around the country. So yeah. Nice. You're not getting rid of me yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I listened to um, one of your episodes or interviews about um, how you and your wife were trying to have children. Mm-hmm. And while I was listening to that, I was thinking like, oh, my gosh, this could be like a great book if she was like talking about how she met her wife and how she was having her kids. And like, here you are. <laughs> yeah. um, it's coming. Yeah. People want to know. People, I have, there was my story about the birth of my second son. My wife carried my biological son, which is a long and involved story, but um, a sort of fun, short version of it was on the Moth podcast like a week ago or so. Um, And and, and I really, like, in part, I told that story because so many people ask us. People are curious. How Mm -hmm. do two women have babies together? And I get (laughs) Sure. No, I get it. Science is fascinating, and I'm grateful for science. And, um, but I was like, we got to put this in a book and we got to make it fun. And, you know, we also just need, like, the love story, the her and I. We haven't had any of that. We haven't had a really great lesbian when Harry met Sally. You know, like, funny, you know, not mm. tragic, right? A funny yeah. love story. Um, and then put on top and add in there, you know, how we go about having kids. I think that's people interested in that. Um, and then what it's like, you know, having two sons as two women. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's coming. It's coming. Stay tuned. I will be oh, looking awesome. forward to that for sure. Yeah. That's, All right. Yeah, definitely looking forward to it. And so, Tara, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been a blast. I know. Thank uh, you for having me, ladies. This concludes our interview with Tara Clancy. We hope you enjoyed this special episode. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us for our next monthly podcast at the Eclectic Readers Podcast. Check us out at eclecticreaders.fireside.fm or on Goodreads. Look for relevant links in our show notes and let's shelve this until next time.